drugs. Rape. Quality of life. Recovery. Harm reduction. Advocacy. Policy. Treatment. Stigma. Drugs Uncut. The Scottish Drugs Forum Podcast. Hi and welcome to Drugs Uncut, the Scottish Drugs Forum podcast which is an informal yet informed space for discussion around drug related issues in Scotland. My name is Andy Coffey and I'm joined with my SDF colleagues Kirsten Horsburgh and Austin Smith for our second podcast episode. So guys, how do we feel after the first one, which, uh, which was approximately a month ago? Uh, good, I think, yeah. It was uh, us venturing into new territory, so it seems to have been quite positively received, and I've certainly had a lot of good feedback about it. Um, obviously, with Garth being on it was a major bonus, so uh, yeah, all good. All good. Austin, how are you feeling? Yeah, relieved. That's probably <laughs> the right word for it. Relieved. It seems to be well received and uh, held together as a, a document. Uh, because I, I think I've been in more podcasts than I've actually listened to, so uh, no, it sounded good. <laughs> Perfect, good. Well, so, just to take it down a little tone, um, in July we all heard the tragic news that 1,187 people died of a drug overdose in Scotland in 2018. So in this episode we're going to look at some of the response to this, namely what's been done through the work of the New Drugs Death Task Force and what could potentially be done uh, where we discuss our current naloxone provision. In the show, we'll look at what the task force is, why it came about, and who's involved. Uh, we'll also sit down with the chair of the task force, Professor Katrina Matheson, uh, to chat about how the task force has gone so far and what it hopes to achieve. Our colleague and fellow Drugs Uncut podcast host, Kirsten, was asked to present to the group at their first meeting in September on recommendations for Scotland's national naloxone programme. So we'll be picking our brains on what ideas she provided then. So firstly, how did the task force come about? Well, in March 2019, that's when Joe Fitzpatrick, the Public Health Minister, announced that in Parliament that the Drug Death Task Force is going to be created. Then in July, the task force officially launched and Professor Katrina Matheson, who's going to be on the show later on, was announced as the chair. Then in September, the rest of the membership was announced and the first meeting also took place. So what exactly is the task force? Well, according to the group, the primary role is to coordinate and drive action to improve the health outcomes for people who use drugs, reducing the risk of harm and death. Within this, the remit is to examine evidence and good practice about what works to prevent drug-related deaths, identify barriers to the delivery and participation in services, make recommendations for changes in current health and social care practices, and also to review whether the Misuse of Drugs Act affects the provision and consistent public health approach to drug use. The group consists of 26 members, which include people with expertise in drug treatment, public health, psychiatry, social work, substance use academia, the criminal justice system, as well as people with lived experience of drug-related problems. So, now we've got a bit of a, a ground rock on it. Um, guys, let's discuss it a little bit. Uh, so, the task force was created in response to rising drug-related deaths. So, what was the background prior to it being set up? Well, it depends how far back you want to go, I suppose, but we've had a number of years, I think now five years, in which we've had the record levels of drug deaths. Um, and for each of those, there's been a kind of reaction uh, in terms of the kind of political reaction, the reaction across the field. Um, but when they, they escalated considerably last year, uh, it was obvious that something was going to have to happen. Um, and what, of course, we had was a new strategy. So a year ago, in November 2018, uh, we had the new strategy. And maybe for people that are further away, uh, don't uh, understand that process or don't appreciate that. It's quite a long-term process. So that process was well in train um, before uh, the drug death figures came out or the latest ones came out. Um, and I, they, uh, 
if you if you read it closely, it has a focus on drug-related harms and deaths, uh, but not the focus it might have if it was written now. So very soon after it came out, there was still, uh, between November and March, still this press. Uh, I don't think it was just uh, in pressure in terms of the media or whatever. It was across the field and in, in public discourse about uh, drug-related deaths and what we're going to do about them, and that kind of conversation about an emergency and so on. Uh, so I think that's a lot of the background that's important to understand the impetus that, that brought us the, the task force. And I think for me, um, the task force is a useful resource to have because it spotlights the issue and there's pressure on it, which I think is good. And I think the task force can be there to drive forward a lot of initiatives and a lot of things that are um, have been discussed for a long time in Scotland. But I also strongly feel that there are loads of things that can also be done without having to wait for task force recommendations. And I think that was probably my worry about it at first was um, that people would just sit back and wait for the task force to recommend things rather than just moving on and delivering things locally. Um, and I think I was quoted in a media uh, interview where I was cut short in my sentence and I said we can't pin all our hopes and expectations on a task force and they cut me off there. But what, what the whole sentence was, was we can't pin all our hopes and expectations on a task force when there are still lots of things that we can be doing locally. And that's, that's key, I think, to people understanding what the task force is about. I suppose it's about coordination and impetus. It's not that the task force are going to come up with something new. The, the, the drug strategy itself and many reports before it, um, including a lot of the work SDF's done, um, identify exactly what we should be doing. And most of that is modelled elsewhere in the UK, in pockets in Scotland uh, and across Europe uh, and the rest of the world. So we, the, the evidence is there. We know what we should be doing. It's a question of coordinating, prioritising and coordinating that work. And so SDF isn't part of the, the group itself, uh, isn't part of the task force, but person, as we'll be discussing later on, you've been asked to present at the group. Um, so how exactly will um, will other organisations around Scotland be able to kind of feed in to the group, do you feel? Well, it's in its early days. So um, we have observer status. So we, we literally att can attend uh, meetings and observe what, what's going on. Uh, that, that's a nice invitation, but I think probably of more importance is what happens underneath the group. So as subgroups and working groups are established, it's about uh, those having a wider uh, resource than the actual group itself. I mean, that, that, that's the model, clearly. Um, and that's where you can, people can have real influence, whether that's individual service, services or different parts of the field and related fields uh, can input at that, at that level. Uh, because I, I think the big group, big as it is, is likely to give kind of direction about the direction of travel, if you like, it's, it's not going to be the specifics of actually what changes are required and how they're going to be made. And what exactly is the structure of the of the group, as we, as we know? Because obviously there's the 26 members, uh, but then there's subgroups within those who are also going to be doing some of the work that Katrina is going to be discussing a bit later on. But do we know a little bit about those groups? Yeah, well, the structure below that is like seems to be evolving um, and there are subgroups and beneath them the working groups um, and but they cover the areas which you know we've established for a long time where are the issues the issues are in treatment in that narrow sense of medical treatment that people are getting and the psychosocial support around it they are around the complexity of people's needs 
particularly with that older group who where the deaths in the main occur um, and the growing complexity of, of uh, their needs and in terms of support and their health and so on. Um, and on data, so what we have liked, or always liked in Scotland and uh, performed poorly in is collecting data. So people ask very simple questions about how many people are on medication, how long are people on medication, so on. We don't know the exact answers to this, uh, which has been a bugbear for a long time. So there's, there's a, 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 a issue around that and a group to look at that. Um, and then there's the wider thing, which is more of a kind of political context, if you like, is about where the devolution settlement sits and where uh, the, the legal framework uh, would best support a reduction in drug deaths or addressing drug, drug harms. Right. So a lot of the work is going to be taking place throughout these um, subgroups that will then feed into the main task force, uh, which will then kind of progress from there. Excellent, cool. So Wilson caught up with the chair of the task force, Professor Katrina Matheson earlier, uh, just to find out how it's gone so far and uh, what its hopes are for the future. So we can hear a little bit from that conversation now. Okay, so we're joined by Katrina Matheson, who is the chair of the Drug Death Task Force in Scotland. So how would you introduce yourself? Um, where have you been? Where have I been for the last 25 years? Um, yeah, so I suppose that, um, I'm an academic. I mean, that's how I would describe myself. I'm an academic. I come originally from a pharmacy background in public health, so I've trained in that. And um, then I worked in academic research at the University of Aberdeen for um, 20 um, or so years. Um, and that work was all around addiction and service yeah. delivery. So um, quite a lot of around pharmacy because that was my interest but not certainly not exclusively that because I was based in a primary care department so working across services looking at how we can you know, best deliver service but also innovative um, practice um, and trialling different innovations in practice through pharmacy through general practice and through services so that's that's where I've come from I am um, I left Aberdeen University about three years ago and I've set up as a consultant, just working freelance research, so I've worked with a variety of different agencies and academic institutions as well in that role. And that led me into the Drugs Research Network, which I am a convener of and was very involved from the start in getting that Drugs Research Network off the ground, along with a number of colleagues who are um, now represented on, on the, the group, the committee, that oversees the, the work of the Drugs Research Network. And I think it's through that that I was sort of on the radar, probably, and got asked yeah. to take on the, the role as chair of the task force. And some of the work that SDF did, you were involved in uh, joint work with SDF, if that's what they call yeah. it, around the older drug users. Yes. And you did a paper on public perception or and stigma. Yeah, yeah. That's so going back, back a few yeah. years, um, when I was at Aberdeen, I was very inter interested. So we'd done work with pharmacy, we'd done work with general practice, we'd done work with nursing workforce all around perceptions of drug use. And it seemed a big gaping hole. We'd actually never asked the public around there. So um, I knew Dave and the SDF were interested in that. So we got together and did a collaborative bit of work looking at public perceptions of drug treatment and this was at a time when you know there was lots of negative stuff in the press around yeah. methadone, methadone millionaires. And, and I mentioned that because 
in a way, that's the the root of the concern which has led to the task force. So, although it's primarily around drug deaths and the, the problem we have in Scotland with, with drug deaths and, and the extent of uh, drug-related deaths compared with other countries in Europe, yeah. actually, the background to that is around that stigmatising uh, attitude and some of the misperceptions, if you like, of the public and politicians and stakeholders within the field around evidence-based practice and so on. Yeah. So my question would be, how do you see the, the work of the task force? What, what's its purpose? Um, and if you'd like to just update us on how things are panning out, you've only had two meetings, so how's it, the structure evolving and, and how do you see the work developing? Yes, I mean, stigma underpins so many things and it comes out no matter who you ask and across sectors, it's emerging and coming out and has been for a while about stigma being a barrier for people to access treatment, to access good um, recovery pathways as well through employment. And so, uh, and that's something that, you know, um, I wrote a paper on stigma in the pharmacy actually back in 1989. No, 98, I'm not that <laughs> um, no, Yeah, 90. So, yeah, so it's always been an interest. Um, and it underpins a lot of this, as you say. So, in terms of the task force and where we're Going obviously, it's a response to an emergency situation about drug deaths, which are escalating, as we know. And you know, two years ago, I was on the I was on the side of I was noting this as everybody else was and saying, "This is you know this is dreadful. What we're going to do? We need to do something." And starting to look into some research projects from an academic perspective around what we could do. Um, so when the task force was announced and now is taking place, the remit clearly is about looking at how we address drug-related deaths and in the emergency sort of uh, forum. But we can't do that without some of these fundamental issues being addressed. So stigma wean one, um, our treatment approach and services being another, um, and also information around, you know, how do we get good information quickly that we can respond to? So public health surveillance comes from that. So there's a, a programme of work around that. And then um, also around from a criminal justice perspective, you know, what, what's hampering us, yeah. what's hampering people. Um, so there is a group that's looking at that in terms of are there alternatives to um, the criminal justice approach. So diversion schemes, for example, where people have entered into treatment rather than um, criminal justice. So that, that's an area that, that is being worked up. There is also the kind of actual legislation, legislative issues around the Misuse of Drugs Act and um, how that might, you know, if that were different, what could we do differently? How could uh, Scotland um, address things differently? Or the UK, because actually it's a UK problem and it's yeah. UK legislation. So... It's more acute in Scotland, and that's why we're we're interested in it. We're we're there's a lit, there's not too much we can do with changing legislation at this point in time, given you know political situations, and um, particularly Westminster being you know more interested in Brexit, etc. So we're working. It's really about what can we do in the current in the current system. Okay. Yeah. And and actually, what's interesting, I suppose, to see, although there's always some frustration in it, is that. 
for the two of us and many people that have been following these things closely for years, yeah. there isn't something, some magic wand, silver bullet, new thing. Um, it's about doing things that we know uh, there's an evidence base for and we've been working towards for years. Maybe doing some of those things better, which is, yes. I, I suspect, I which right, some yeah. of the stuff is about the OST and improving the information we have. But there's also that public perception that uh, you know this is an emergency, which of course it is, and that therefore we must be doing something fresh and new. And so, so there's a kind of tension there about the perception of the task force and its work. There's a, a, a need to have you know uh, early results, quick solutions, new ideas, or whatever. So holding that together, um, I'm sure, has been difficult. How's that felt? Is it, yeah, yeah. I mean, it is difficult, without a doubt. Um, I mean, so an example would be um, people saying we need to, this is a public health emergency, um, and calling for a public health yeah. emergency. Well, it is a public health emergency, but in Scotland we have no mechanism or legislative um, mechanism to support any action from that. That has to come from Westminster, um, and you know we've so we've been down that that route and been over that that's now for me the old ground we have to just get on with doing what we know needs done um, and doing it quicker and more effectively so yeah so that's a frustration and um, because that's the, the perception yes you can of course you can call a public health emergency but we as a task force in Scotland can't, yeah, can't do there's that. no legislation mm. to allow us to do that we've explored that and we explored it very very early on um, so if we move on from that, then there is this, you know, what, what, what's new and what can be done in terms of innovation. Mm. And we do need to be innovative because actually when you look at the information coming from the ECMDs, the European Monitoring Centre um, and the WHO, any of these global um, bodies who look at drug-related deaths, the approach is about getting people into treatment and that treatment has to be good effective treatment, and we can maybe talk about that if you yeah. want. Um, ha um, making sure naloxone is you know, maximised, distribution is maximised, so we're, you know, there's a programme in Scotland to, trying to do that. We can, there's, we can pick up also on, on where that could be further pushed and expanded. Um, making sure there's good needle exchange systems, which we have in Scotland already. And drug testing is something that comes out of that in some places. So that's, that is an, an innovation for Scotland that we're um, supportive of in the task force. So those are the, what underpins the kind of global response. None of that is as innovative as we need to be because we have additional um, issues that we need to deal with. And I've been at conferences over the last couple of months hoping to pick up on some new idea that somewhere and and there isn't but that's a long held thing in scotland that there's a kind of exceptionalism where we think mm. one of problems bigger and of a different nature than everyone else's and that somehow there'll be a scottish solution i was disappointed or um, maybe that's more negative than it was but I was certainly intrigued it might be a better word um that in the strategy at uh, one point it says that maybe the solutions, and solutions is an interesting word, but maybe the solutions lie in places we haven't looked or explored or something. And it, it, it's an appeal almost, to, an appeal to magic or to something yeah. different. Mm. And in actual fact, when you look at the evidence base, as you say, what we need to do is clear. Mm. But a lot of the frustration I suspect, and this is a, a lot that comes, that comes through uh, social media and through yeah. the uh, lived experience, uh, 
input uh, is a frustration, not with actually with the evidence base or even necessarily with the interventions um, or that the task force would support. It's about the whole culture of uh, that people are forced to live in, and that, that's reflected obviously in that stigma. But also, it's about changing the culture of the services mm -hmm. um, and the way people are dealt with. Uh, which is wrong from from as, as an approach in the first place, yeah. isn't it? So it's about the way people are worked with in service mm. and, and input to services. So yeah. have you personally got a view on that, and and not just on how it should be, but how that could be changed? Um, Even in terms of methadone or you know the, the, yeah, the narrowest yeah. version of treatment. Definitely. So um, so I think we have gone a bit wrong in that we've probably put too much emphasis on the drug component of treatment and not enough on the wraparound services. So, and all the, the literature for, around opiate replacement treatment or methadone, where most of it's from, on methadone, but buprenorphine as well, the literature is very strong that it, that it is a very effective treatment, but the dose has to be right and it's got to have wraparound services um, that support uh, social interaction, employment, um, rebuilding family relationships, where these components are there, what we don't know from the evidence is exactly what mix of components yeah. is best and that's where we're at working working on that through the um, one of the subgroups so I'll, I'll go on to that in a second. Um, but we do know that having not just the medical bits got to have that wraparound care and also the amount of person-centeredness. So that's something that one of our groups is also looking at, is the complex needs in the person-centered care. The service structure, service providers across the board to try and see how we can actually deliver what's, what's um, and more effective. And treatment services, if you travel around treatment services and you speak to staff, you meet staff who are under a lot of uh, stress and yeah. people refer to themselves as being burnt out and so on. Mm -hmm. But a lot of that is about working very hard with people in crisis. And yeah. so it's about moving people beyond crisis and, say, and, and saying, well, wh where's that therapeutic relationship? So people will say, oh, I've got a very good relationship with some of my clients and you know, I'll help them with really complex issues they've faced. But almost all of them have been kind of crisis-based. Yeah. Uh, and so you have one trusted worker, as somebody uses services, you've got one trusted worker, that person is your addiction worker, or whatever they call themselves. and. Um, that's where you, that's your go-to person. So I think historically the existence of specialist services has allowed mainstream services off the hook. So when people have got a housing problem, they go to their drug worker, yeah. and when they've got a problem with a DWP, they go to their drug worker, and when they've got a health problem, they go to their drug worker. Um, and so it, it, all, it all falls on that one service. Yeah, that's right. So, so I, I suspect part of the work is about what is the wraparound, but also who delivers it and yeah. how we do joint work and how we could have a, what in other contexts they call a recovery-orientated system of care, yeah. a system of care rather than one specialist yeah. service. Yeah. And even in terms of the, the narrow medical, the prescribing side of things, yeah. um, we, there's a whole range of, uh, which you might refer to as person-centred, I suppose, but there's a whole range of um, ways in which that's done. Yeah. And, and actually what we've drifted away from is, is clinical guidelines really and, and so on in terms of optimal dosing and so on, which has now become controversial. But that's created an ambiguity about the purpose of treatment and where treatment might go. 
and and the difference between treatment and harm reduction. Um, so and methadone, particularly in Scotland, is kind of borne the weight of of all of that. Mm. Um, so I wonder how much. It's about taking things back and thinking, well, these are NHS patients. So normally what would happen when an NHS patient who wasn't progressing on a medication was they'd be offered Try alternative, something else. Of off, alternative uh, medications. Yeah. And in terms of dose, there, there'd be a dose that would, was advised, but a prescriber might work with a patient on a lower dose or a different dose. Yeah. Um, but, but, but do and that some, in a way that... Yeah, there's some discussion between... Yeah, exactly. Between... Um, patient, yeah. I'm using the word patient because we, we are talking about mm. a, a prescribing mm. patient um, relationship, then yeah, and it's the same that would happen in any other yeah. area. And often those relationships are quite difficult. So, you know, it's a bit like mental health, someone who's on antidepressants, and if one doesn't work for them, they try something mm. else. Mm. And if the dose feels a bit high, they're getting side effects, you reduce the dose or, or you put it up if it's not working. So that, and that's all done in, in consultation. There can be points in that where people disagree because they might want to come off their antidepressants yeah. and the clinician might think, I don't think you're quite ready for that. So there's a discussion. And that will happen in any, you know, that will happen. And that does happen, obviously, here. So we haven't had enough options and treatment around the, the pharmaceutical, mm. the, the, the drug bit. Mm. We should all, this should be the full range of um, buprenorphine, methadone, and now we've got different products within buprenorphine yeah. as well, which is very welcome. And of course there's heroin assisted treatment, and the evidence for that is strong, but for that very chaotic and difficult group who have not engaged with, with other options. So they, if we could offer that full range and provide it in a way where there's discussion between patient and clinician about what is best for them, then of course that, that's how it, it that's how it should be done. Yeah, yeah. And that relationship should uh, be one of both sides of it, if you like, learning from each other and also being empowered yeah. um, to actually make decisions and, that, and, the, and the power uh, move across the desk, as it were, from, from the prescriber to, to yeah. the, the, the person who's, who's actually should be driving their own recovery yeah. or their own treatment. And that's the, the kind of ethos um, within the wider um, Scottish health care yeah. delivery, you know, around um, getting the right medicine. It's, you know, that is ethos that it's not about uh, clinicians saying what they think. There's a, it's a two-way um, discussion. Obviously, the person taking the medicine knows how they feel and the clinician has to be responsive to to the feedback they get and give time for that yeah. as well, which is maybe part of yeah. the problem, is yeah. the, the time aspect. Well, I suppose my last question, which you can answer very briefly or go into more detail if you want, is, is around your hopes for the future, about where the task force is. I think it's meant to sit until 2021. Yeah. Um, and so what, what do you see happening in the sort of short, medium term, long term? Yeah, so we've had two meetings of the full task force and um, there's the four subgroup meetings yeah. plus there's other work going on around stigma and around um, the sort of immediate response and then the lock zone, for example. So in terms of the short, medium, long term, well, in the short, the very short term, I'm hoping we can make some progress on pushing the lock zone out. So, for example, very, very short term, we're trying to get make sure all the winter shelters that are about to open um, 
make sure they've all got naloxone and we're hoping we might be able to get peer-to-peer -peer naloxone distribution. So I'm saying that with my fingers slightly crossed because that is, you know, this is the nature of it. We've got a plan for that yeah. and we're trying to trying to make it happen. Yeah, and those people yeah. are really trying to work to get that to happen on time. There's discussions with the ambulance service and they're being very supportive about leaving naloxone with people who have had a non-fatal overdose. And there was 5,000 people administered yeah. naloxone by the, by the ambulance service um, last year. So that's trying to really home in. And in the short term, it's those very um, high-risk acute cases and non-fatal overdoses is where we're, we're looking at that. So medium term, we're hoping to pilot... Um, I mentioned the... We were talking about OST, but it's called, where what we are calling that group is medically-assisted treatment. And the reason we're doing that is to put the emphasis on the, the treatment, not on the medical bit of it. Um, so we're hoping we're, there's a very good pilot study ongoing in Dalkeith at the moment. We're anticipating the results of that. Um, and we are hoping to set up an, another low barrier service. And an OSDF has been very involved with colleagues in, in Lothian to a low barrier um, access service. So those are being followed very carefully while we just pull in some other bits of evidence around what sort of social support. And then we're going to develop the standards, optimum and minimal standards of care. So that's a medium term. And in terms of the in the, the longer term, so there's work happening um, around the diversion schemes proposals. So the group that's looking at criminal justice um, alternatives um, are going to be visiting some sites in other parts of the UK to see what they can learn. And hopefully then we'll be able to bring back proposals around what we can test um, in Scotland, so that's a that's a sort of selection. But I just want I do want to give you a, a feel for what is ongoing um, in the longer term. I would like to have a public health surveillance system where everybody's um, drug death uh, review groups can link up with um, the national data and how we can be um, responsive to that. So that's a, that is something that will take a bit longer because of. The, um, information and data sharing issues that need to be considered and pulling together kind of big um, organisations to, to share um, information and data. So that's a longer term um, plan, but, but hopefully there'll be progress um, on that. And I suppose ultimately, certainly from a public and, and I suppose a political uh, judgment will be made simply on the number of drug deaths and, and we have to do something to... to or, or, or we can only really measure ourselves in that way in terms of them being reduced. That's the stark reality, isn't it? Is that people are going to be looking at the drug death figures. I'm very conscious of this, and I know that the drug death figures for next year are going to be as bad. I mean, I'm, because, you know, although there's initiatives, there are initiatives that, that were happening anyway in different pockets around the country. Um, and some places we might find actually they might not be as bad, so that will be worth us um, scrutinising to see what's happened in those areas. But overall, it's not going to be good. I know this, so I'm not going to make any unrealistic expectations about turning this around. This is a huge issue that is going to take. Um, it's going to take a few years, I would say, to turn around. And it's maybe not part of your uh, remit or the task force remit, because these are, and I know you understand this very well. These are. These are personal and family tragedies, yeah. uh, and there's there's people, friends, and family uh, left behind. 
And so I suppose part of the, the, the work, uh, the wider work, is about supporting those, those people, uh, particularly children affected uh, in terms of trauma and ACEs and so on, that we know the impact of. I'll close this uh, there, Christina, and I'm sure you'll be back to give us an update in a year's time, see how you're getting on. Um, but just to wish you all the very best. Thank and, you. Uh, offer any support we have uh, in terms of the work of the group. Yeah, great, thank you. And we do appreciate the support you've provided already. So, yeah. So, thanks very much for that, Austin. Uh, that was a really interesting interview there with uh, Katrina Matheson, who obviously is the chair of the Scottish Drug Death Task Force. Uh, quite insightful as well, her talking about the structure and how that um, all kind of operates. And also, the I thought it was really interesting about the, the short and the medium and the long-term goals and the longer, longer-term goals of that as well. I thought, you know, it was quite interesting how she was saying about, uh, how she mentioned, you know, that oh, this is dreadful, what are we going to do when those, um, you know, a couple of years ago when the drug-related death figures were starting to go up. And I suppose there's been this, rightfully so, ever since, you know, the drug-related death figures have been rising over the past five years incrementally, um, there has been a rising pressure and, and, and almost... Um, pressure on not just the government but also a wider society on on something that needs to be done uh, in regards to it which I suppose is why the, the drug death task force has come about. I th and I think that's right I think it's right that there's pressure on it this is a massive issue um, and we've had you know I remember way back to when I first started working in uh, drug treatment services as a nurse and you know I remember in the specific year it was 2009 and there were 545 drug deaths in that year and now we look at the drug deaths and we're almost at 1200. Three people die in a day from accidental and preventable drug overdoses. If this was any other type of poisoning death every day could you imagine what the response would be? Three people dropping dead every day across Scotland the media would be on it every day looking at what are the solutions for this what is happening for this and there would be instant changes to practice there would be instant changes pushed through legislation so I think it's right that the pressure is on uh, for something to be done and for something to be done urgently about it. Uh, absolutely and I mean you see that pressure around the stuff around the Glasgow hospital and the, the deaths of uh, children in the hospital. There's a huge concern about any kind of public health event like that uh, and an inquiry and so on. And I, I mean, I, the thing to remember is that we're making progress, uh, if not on the on the figures themselves at the moment, it's certainly around attitudes. So it's not that long ago that people in the field uh, and others were saying, well, there's not much we can do about these deaths. This is a, an ageing cohort and a group of people who've got all these complex needs. These are preventable deaths and, and we've man managed to uh, make that front and centre that these are preventable. And as soon as you say they're preventable, it means that there is responsibility for these deaths. There's things that people can do, uh, both as individuals and in, within their organisation. So I think that's understood and th therefore that we should do something. So that's where the task force comes from. So what is it we're going to do? And actually, in fact, there's not, it's not a, a, a commission that's going to have to look at all the evidence and wonder what the hell it is we're going to do about this. What we should do is fairly obvious. It's about coordinating that, that work. And throughout uh, a number of times throughout the interview, uh, there sp specifically relates to you, Kirsten, obviously as the former lead of the Scottish National uh, Naloxone oh, have Programme. I been, have I been sat? Oh, you're still, still <laughs> yeah. lead? Right, okay, take that back. 
<laughs> there we go. It's still, still there, still there. So yeah, so, so basically Katrina mentioned throughout the whole of that interview there a couple of times about obviously the importance of naloxone, naloxone delivery and uh, dissemination across Scotland. Now we've obviously been uh, within SDF and yourself been instrumental with the, the Scottish National Naloxone Programme um, and you went along to the first meeting and presented to them uh, on the possible recommendations for where the National Auction Programme should go next. So, so what, what did you present on? Yeah, sure. So, yeah, so I'm not a member of the task force, so I was invited along to that first meeting. Um, to specifically talk about naloxone, um, and I have uh, subsequently been on the next meeting as the as an observer, which is uh, quite a frustrating position to be in at times. It doesn't come naturally to me to be able to not speak at these sort of things. So uh, yeah, that's uh, it can be a bit of a challenge. But yeah, so I mean, just to give you a quick um, idea of where we're at with the naloxone program in Scotland. So naloxone is a medication that. Uh, temporarily reverses the effects of an opioid-related overdose. So um, it doesn't stop the overdose happening in the first place, but once an overdose has occurred, it is essential that naloxone is there um, and is a miraculous medication that can be used to reverse overdoses and ultimately stop people dying. Um, and there has been some discussion recently because we have um, multiple substances involved in our overdoses and benzodiazepines, obviously one of the, one of the key ones. Um, but 86% of our deaths involve opiates. So if, even if somebody's been using a lot of benzodiazepines, even if they have a small amount of opiates in their system, just reversing the opiate can be enough to save that person's life. So it's always worth giving naloxone, even if you aren't sure what the person has taken. So the programme, uh, the national programme has been in existence since 2011 and there have been over 50,000 naloxone kits supplied across the country uh, to people likely to witness an overdose and it's been used thousands of times to reverse what could have been potentially fatal overdoses. So that's where we're at and we have a world recognised um, programme, you know the World Health Organisation picked it up and used it as an example of good practice for launching their guidelines um, on how to deal with overdoses. So there are lots of things that we do really well with our programme and we're in quite a privileged position with it but it's not perfect and there are definitely improvements that we could be making. So I guess the purpose of me going along to the meeting to talk about it was to say these are the areas that we think should be uh, developed and could be um, driven from the task force but not all delivered from the task force. So just things that it would be good for the task force to support. Yeah, so I went through quite a few recommendations at the meeting and one of the first ones, and they were in no particular order, was around peer supply. So since the regulations changed in October 2015, it has been possible for peers to supply naloxone. Um, we had one project in Glasgow that piloted um, peer naloxone. They did a fantastic job and within uh, a year had supplied over 1,300 take-home naloxone kits to uh, to their peers. And so that was the first in the UK? It was indeed, it yeah. And now that same programme is being emulated somewhat down south? With yeah, so the George Charlton has done some work down south with the foundations um, and they have set up a group of peer naloxone trainers and they have a peer supply group and George had actually come up to Glasgow and uh, met with the peers here and used a lot of the learning from Glasgow to influence the work that took place down in Middlesbrough um, so that's been a really successful link yeah. there as well. Absolutely and that's what 
we were talking about with Gareth last time we were together. Yeah. Um, but the disappointing thing about that is it's been very hard to re replicate out with Glasgow. What was that? What's that about? Is that cultural, or is it because of limitations within the programme, or is it resource, or people not understanding how to get started? Yeah, I think it's a combination of all of those things. It has been really difficult. We've tried to encourage other areas across Scotland to look at this type of model as well. So there's resource issues for sure about support, because it needs a lot of support to get it up and running. You can't just leave people hanging once you've trained them uh, to go away and deliver it. There needs to be a lot of wraparound support to ensure that it, it goes ahead. Um, there are some um, discussions about people having to have volunteer status within an organisation to be able to actually be involved in the supply of it because it's still a prescription-only medicine. So there are a lot of little intricacies, but nothing that can't be worked through. Um, so definitely we would like to support other areas to be able to, to deliver uh, similar. It totally makes sense. They Absolutely. do a fantastic job. And I think like what I found really interesting as well was the fact that because it was peers that were distributing the naloxone, there was so much enthusiasm, which obviously has been reflected in the numbers that are being given out as well. It was almost like the, the health board couldn't almost um, keep up with the demand for the amount of uh, kits that were being supplied. So that's obviously such a massive factor as well, that, that almost kind of passion that's kind of driven in there from, from, from the ground up, uh, which obviously is supported by, by, by organisations such as us and, and the health board and so on. So yeah, absolutely something that, that uh, should be replicated elsewhere. Yeah, for sure. They're so credible. Yeah, and, uh, and it's that kind of stuff that changes culture within services as well. Um, it would be it'd be good to see it replicated. Yeah. Okay, so that was one of the main ones. The next one was in relation to the Scottish Prison Service. Obviously the prison service in Scotland has been supplying the Loxone since 2011 as well to people when they're released. Um, and there are several issues with that not being consistently the numbers we would like to see so there are lots of operational issues as to why that doesn't um, produce as many supplies as we would like it to so um, some of the recommendations there were around increasing that uptake in naloxone on release from uh, strong leadership and adjustments to current practice um, overdose awareness and naloxone training to be provided to prison officers through the college. So we did a training programme with the night staff prison officers across the entire estate. So they now have naloxone on the halls for use overnight when there is no nursing staff available, um, which is fantastic. Um, and, you know, um, it was... I, quite an interesting period of delivering that training mm -hmm. from uh, Jason, my former colleague Jason um, and I delivering that training over the course of a few months. Um, but we were pleased to see the programme actually be initiated in the prison service. Um, so now we would like that training to be rolled out across all prison officers and not just the night staff because it might be that the nurses are on like another side of the prison when an overdose happens and it makes sense that everybody is able and equipped to respond. Um, and then also, um, now that we have a nasal naloxone product, we're also floating the discussion of, well, why can people who are in prison not have uh, intranasal naloxone in their own personal possession? Mm -hmm. um, so those are discussions that are ongoing just now. Um, and we had a good meeting with the prison service the other week uh, regarding the progress on that one. So that's been one that's um, been a recommendation at the task force and you've seen some clear actions from that, that that has then been taken back to the organisation and been able to uh, be progressed. So we hope to see 
some future actions coming from that. And I suppose, is, is that, would it be easier with intranasal naloxone purely because the uh, naloxone is used at the moment is injectable? Is that, is that the, the problematic nature it's of it? It's the issue of the needle, yeah. like, which is why people would never have it in their own possession in the holes as it stands at the minute. Um, but yeah, so nasal naloxone is a potential for that. But one of the biggest issues we have with the prison service is about uh, naloxone not being in people's belongings when they leave. So there's lots of um, operational barriers to that. Um, and some prisons have managed to find a good streamlined process to be able to deliver it. But there's still, um, still some difficulties, yeah. for sure. So that was the prison service. Um, there was another um, recommendation in relation to Scottish Ambulance Service, so we've been working with them for some time and it's always been on our horizon that we would love to see paramedics being able to supply naloxone to people once they've experienced a near-fatal overdose but they decline transfer to hospital, which is you know, a relatively common occurrence um, and something that we hear about anyway anecdotally. Um, the ambulance service actually have figures on that and the, the numbers that go to hospital seem to be a lot higher than we would have expected but then people are not always you know, admitted to hospital because by the time they've sort of come round and are a bit more alert, uh, the idea of actually being admitted into hospital is not so appealing. Um, so we made some recommendations about um, the paramedics having a patient group direction that they could then supply naloxone in those instances. Um, also to be providing training to uh, the Scottish Ambulance Service so that all paramedics and technicians are um, acutely aware of the National Naloxone Programme and what we're trying to achieve with it. And we've also done over the years some work with emergency call handlers um, so that the person, because emergency call handlers are not clinically trained, come from all sorts of different backgrounds and work experience, um, so they have a very strict script to follow when somebody phones in an emergency situation. So we did some work with them to um, give them an naloxone script that they're able to follow. And we've also delivered some training to the call handler so they're much more familiar and able to give that advice to somebody who phones so that they understand the situation a bit better. Um, but there's still some issues there that we need to iron out as well um, just to make sure that everybody is getting the, the accurate advice that they need when they when they call for help so yeah i mean those are to people further away from this and you're obviously we're not close to it and have been for some time these are kind of obvious places where we would start so people who have a non-fatal overdose and get an ambulance attendance would be given a take-home kit the kit's actually different from what's carried in the ambulance is that right yeah, I mean, they have yeah, injectable yeah, yeah. naloxone in ambulances as well, but it won't quite look exactly the same yeah. as the take-home kits. And then, or, or people that attend the A&E uh, who maybe have a drug-related problem, they're obviously an opiate user and maybe using opiates every day, um, is, it, is an obvious supply, um, or what you would have thought was an obvious supply could be made to that person and they could just take a kit away from them. Yeah. Yeah, so I suppose, you know, some people's question would be, who are far away from the detail of this say, you know, let's get naloxone out here. Who, who, who's in touch with people who have a non-fatal overdose? Ambulances, A&E departments, maybe the police, um, uh, areas of town, you know, where businesses are, where there's, you know, public injecting and so on. Let's just get naloxone out there. And yet, each of these places, it's been quite difficult to, to get a naloxone supply and a, a system that allows that supply. Um, so what are the barriers? 
Oh yes, Austin, this is a very good question. <laughs> <laughs> what are the barriers? Um, and actually, a lot of the time it's just gone down to um, it not being a priority for that service. And it's, a, it's an unfortunate thing to say, but people just not feeling like it's something that they um, have the time, resources or funding to uh, go ahead with, which you know, is not great in the middle of a, a public health crisis in relation to overdoses. So um, I think it's important that we all have a look at our own practices and our own services and a critical look at those to make sure that we are all doing uh, what we should be doing and also that we practice what we preach about as well. So like, you know, anybody who classes themselves as somebody who's likely to witness an overdose should be carrying naloxone with them everywhere they go. Like if you are walking home from your work in Glasgow City Centre, as we will be today, are you carrying naloxone? There's the question. So, you know, we all need to look at ourselves and are, are we all doing enough? So. Um, and uh, by the way, I'm not finished uh, in relation to my recommendations. You can imagine how this presentation went down at the task force. Um, so police, um, police are very often first on the scene of an overdose. Um, so they wouldn't be our natural partners in something like this. But the fact of the matter is that police are there and they have an opportunity to intervene with naloxone to save somebody's life. So we have been working on this with police since the start of the national programme. So this isn't some new thing that we've just thought up overnight or because a task force has been introduced. This has been something that has been a long-standing thing that we've tried to work on them with. And it's been very difficult and there has been a lot of resistance and the Scottish Police Federation are very concerned about it um, and have some um, worries about it going forward and some concerns. Um, but um, we hopefully are almost at the point now especially that we have intranasal naloxone. The needle was a big issue um, in relation to pe police injecting people with a medication. Um, but there are examples of good practice specifically in Birmingham. So West Midlands Police have this year uh, just launched their pro project of uh, police officers, frontline police carrying naloxone. So hopefully some of that will help to progress the work that's been taking place with Police Scotland. But there is a lot of support in the organisation. It's just about, you know, getting that those wheels in motion. And Kirsten, can I just ask how, because um, how, you've, you've been training a huge amount of, uh, huge amount of numbers of, um, of trainee uh, police officers as well. And how's that been received from them as well? I, you, I, anecdotally in the office, I've, I've heard it's pretty good. Yeah, so we've been working with uh, Safer Communities Department at um, Police Scotland who have organised us to go in and deliver these overdose awareness sessions and naloxone awareness sessions to um, probationers, police probationers in training at Tully Allen College done maybe seven or eight of these sessions now and um, they are not mandatory so people choose to come to them um, and at our last one there we had uh, over 120 people attended which was fantastic it was the best attendance that we'd had yet and they are it's so well received um, they're so interested and see it as part of a policing role um, and they're always really enthusiastic about it and always provide the question to the police colleagues that attend with me, why are we not doing this? Um, so I always pass over to them at that mm. point and say, well, why are we not doing this? <laughs> so, uh, yeah. Because um, I suppose if there's a recognition of the fact that, that often they may be a first responder, um, yeah. and I suppose it's kind of, you know, 
it's not a great situation for them emotionally or, or professionally to be in a situation where they may be with someone who's particularly vulnerable, maybe yeah. at the point of losing their life, and they are ill-equipped to help out in any way. Yeah, well, there's that. There's, there's that. And, and we see that. We've seen that in the city centre uh, in overdose situations where, where the police have, uh, you know, are standing. They're actually not making any contribution at all because they can't, um, and they're waiting for an ambulance. But also in rural areas, that must happen more, and it'll be longer to wait for ambulances. Potentially, the police are fairly local, and the ambulance is far away. And the other thing I, I thought would have been that it's a chance to change that relationship between, uh, particularly you know, in a city centre where you've got a, a, a population of people who are using drugs and involved, you know, as in Glasgow, in a kind of homeless scene and a street scene and a public injecting scene, where the, all of the contact with the police is all negative and potentially unpleasant, potentially for both pa parties, it would be a, a chance to change that relationship. Mm -hmm. um, and, and, you know, for the, for the police to see have a, a role beyond simple enforcement. Yeah, and I think in other countries, when you look at this, um, a lot of people who are involved in providing harm reduction services, etc., are really resistant to police involvement in any type of overdose response. And I get that, and I completely see where they're coming from, and it's very different environments uh, in a lot of these countries. And um, I think here it is quite different. Um, and a couple of the sort of regular scenarios that we might see um, with police involvement in overdoses is... Um, a member of the public comes running over with a take-home naloxone kit and are prevented from administering it because the police that are there don't um, know what it is or um, you know they're, they're just unsure obviously somebody running over to <laughs> administer an injection into somebody that they don't know what it is of course they're going to stop them so there's that awareness and making sure that police are aware um, and there's also other scenarios where police would come across people who are actually overdosed and carrying naloxone and then there's that question there about whether they would be supported to administer that naloxone to the person and organisationally I would say that's a very great area for them just now and they need they need um, that reassurance that they're going to be supported by the organisation should they go ahead and deliver it. And I know there are many police that I've spoken with who, you know, would be like, I don't care, I know that's going to save somebody's life and I'm going for it. Um, and I applaud the ones that, you know, that would do that. But I understand the reasons why the police uh, want that kind of you know, they're under quite a lot of public scrutiny and want that kind of reassurance that they have the support of their organisation. However, that does not mean to say that I'm given some kind of get-out clause for them not doing it, like, because I really think that it's an area out of principle that they should be carrying the lock zone. So we hope to see uh, that progressing very soon. Can't see me, but I'm crossing my fingers. Um, so, uh, and just, I've got a whole list of other ones, so... Um, some of them are pretty straightforward. You made reference there, um, Austin, about A&E. Um, so naloxone should be supplied on discharge from hospitals, including A&Es, to anyone likely to witness an overdose. That is not something that we've managed to nail down in Scotland. We have really poor uh, naloxone provision from hospitals and from A&Es, so that needs addressed pronto and it has been something that has been looked at um, in very in various health board areas and some local areas have managed to get small pockets of distribution from those areas and there are some areas that have substance use liaison nurses working within the hospitals that provide it um, but on a whole a national uh, scale it's not something that we've managed to to do well 
Um, pharmacies, so some pharmacies in Scotland provide naloxone kits to uh, people, um, but they require extra funding from the local area to do that, so that's why it doesn't happen in every single health board area. Um, but it's such a useful resource to be able to nip into a pharmacy to get naloxone, um, to get your own take-home kit. But the other side of that is about trying to make sure that all pharmacies across Scotland stock naloxone for use in an emergency. You know, if somebody overdoses nearby, it's a natural place that people would go to to see if they had naloxone. And there have tragically been cases where people have ran to pharmacies to get naloxone and people have died outside pharmacies um, when there has been no naloxone available. So um, we hope to be able to progress uh, some of the pharmacy provision on um, and storage of naloxone as well. All right, with me. I'm with you, with you, yep, keep us going. Yep. On Uh, tender hooks. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, GPs, uh, oh, GPs prescribing naloxone has been another thing that we've been trying to initiate for years and years. Um, And actually, Katrina Matheson led a GP needs assessment project on naloxone um, several years ago the SDF was involved with and that was looking at GP attitudes towards naloxone and what GPs would want and need uh, to be providing it and you know it was about 50% that were supportive of delivering it from their practices. Uh, now that we have a licensed take-home naloxone kit Prinoxad, and now we obviously have the nasal nixoid, um, there's no reason why GPs couldn't be prescribing that so that's something that um, we need to happen as well and in some areas GPs are seeing um, thousands of people who would benefit uh, benefit from it, from getting it from their GP. Um, all third sector drug services to supply naloxone. So since the change in October 2015, it's meant that anyone who's working in a drug service can supply it. But we still don't have all third sector drug services across Scotland in a position to do that. Um, so that, that is something that needs to be looked at locally um, and you know, funding I provided to allow that to, to take place. Um, and I've got here about improving the provision of naloxone via all community drug treatment services through strong leadership and adjust, adjustments to current practice. And that's just really about um, making sure it's still high on the agenda in services. We've got this national programme, but we can't afford to be complacent with it. And it's almost like, you know, it was a huge drive with naloxone at the start and now it's just become, you know, something that's there but isn't always prioritised in services. So it's about, you know, if you've got contact with that person for the very first time, do not let them leave without naloxone because you might never see that person again. Um, so it's about making sure that that is at the front and foremost of your expectations about what you're doing with that person when they, they first come to your service. Um, and if somebody is refusing to take a naloxone kit from you, there's something wrong with your message. Because when people understand the reasons about why you're trying to give them naloxone, it would be extremely rare for people to refuse supplies. I bet none of the peer trainers have ever had anybody refuse to take a naloxone kit from them. So it's about the messaging and about how we get that. I don't think they'd allow them (laughs) to not take it. we always talk about the evidence base. The evidence base is for, for people in treatment, in OST treatment, uh, that they have an elevated risk of an overdose death in the very early days of treatment and when you exit treatment. Yeah. So those are two periods where, um, I don't know if this is a phrase I want to use, but there's no excuse. Um, 
for not making a sup supply and actually insisting on a supply and because a person's at an elevated risk because of your intervention or the ending of your intervention. And likewise, when people leave residential rehab or an abstinence-based service, they have an elevated risk of, of uh, an, an overdose death um, and leaving prisons and so on. So these, these risk factors are known. Yeah. Absolutely. So yeah, it's just about solidifying that kind of message in services that, you know, take home naloxone provision as part of our service priorities. Um, and that's something that, you know, every single person in your service uh, should have naloxone, uh, a naloxone kit. They should be asked about it every time you see them. Um, because often what happens in services as well is you've seen somebody regularly and you ask the question about, have you still got your naloxone kit? And you'll, they'll say, oh, no, I need a new one, actually, because I used it last week. And it's a, you know, good, it's, that's quite a traumatic experience for people to go through as well, like having to uh, save somebody's life, but also something that you would want to congratulate a person for. So it's just about, it generates those conversations um, and you can use it as a, as a tool for that as well and just a bit of support for people so yes um, so my final message was that anyone who's likely to witness an overdose should be carrying naloxone um, absolutely so I think the task force in this respect has been useful to help um, give some of these recommendations a bit of clout um, we've certainly seen some action taking place since uh, the recommendations were made at that forum um, so yeah, uh, watch this space for for some of those. And how do you feel the recommendations were received by the by the with shock at the shock. way I delivered <laughs> right. them? No, um, so yeah, I mean you can imagine um, you can imagine how how it was because obviously a lot of the recommendations that I made at the meeting had the say-so people around the table. So the people who were able to actually progress these recommendations, a lot of them were around the table. So obviously there's a representative from Scottish Prison Service there, there's a representative from Police Scotland there. Yeah, there wasn't justice. one from the ambulance service at the time, but there was at the at the second meeting. But um, yeah, um, and yeah, and also, you know, for instance, the chief medical officer is a member um, of the task force so there are there are areas that she would be able to progress particularly when we're looking at hospitals A&Es you know giving that a bit of um, support through the CMO would be extremely useful so there are lots of areas um, where the people around the table uh, would be influential in their own services to progress them so there was lots of discussion uh, after it um, lots of questions asked um, but you know, it was all it was all positive. You know, people uh, there wasn't any that people disagreed with it anyway, or not that they said publicly <laughs> in that meeting. Um, so yeah, it was all all very positive, and people you know are all on board with the idea that naloxone is a core element of any death prevention strategy. Um, but you know, some of the criticism actually when I um, people were asking the question about why did you only focus on naloxone, and actually. <laughs> It is much broader, our responses need to be much broader than just naloxone, but that is what I was asked to go and talk about. There were other people talking about different things, so it was actually quite nice for me to be able to just focus down on exactly the naloxone recommendations. Um, and this is only a very small part of a much bigger response that's required, but uh, like we said earlier, once overdoses occurred, it's essential that naloxone is available. Mm -hmm. And some of those responses, in fact, all of them pretty much are documented in the new Staying Alive in Scotland 
report which came out recently. It was an updated version. Do you want to say anything quickly about that? Because that's available for free on the SDF website. Yeah, certainly. So um, naloxone is one of the good practice indicators in the Staying Alive in Scotland report. Um, It was sort of relaunched um, in August this year um, and that was something that Scottish Drugs Forum put together um, with support from Scottish Government. It had a foreword from the Public Health Minister this year as well, Joe Fitzpatrick. and that is a tool kit, basically, that can be used by local areas. Um, it has everything that you would need um, to start you off on a drug death prevention strategy for your own local areas. Um, it doesn't encompass absolutely everything, so it's not got things in there like uh, drug consumption rooms and decriminalisation, uh, which are things we also need. But these are all things in this toolkit that can be done now and implemented locally. Um, and I think that's the important thing. And that was something that um, was related to the naloxone recommendations as well, that all these things can be done locally without any kind of regulation changes. So people can access Stay Alive in Scotland on our website um, and they can contact me if they want any further details on how they could get a physical copy of the toolkit or get some support locally um, for us to come and deliver some kind of development day to get key stakeholders around the table and be able to help shape some of the death prevention strategies. The other thing I thought was is an interesting perspective is that frustration. This is this is goes back to stuff we were, I was talking to Katrina about earlier, is the frustration with, well, why are we talking about naloxone? Why is it so narrow? That's been around for years. But this is exactly where we are with a whole load of issues is we've got reasonable uh, coverage. We've got a a good programme, in this case, internationally recognised and all the rest of it. It's actually evidence-based, which is a big evaluation piece of research that went along with it. Um, and what we need, and this is true of a lot of the areas, is what we need is some impetus to make some f- changes that we've been talking about for a long time in terms of delivery. And the hope from the task force would be that the, the people around the table, as you say, are influential enough just to push these things over the line. It's not that there's going to be some massively innovative new thing. It's that just that what we do, we, we should do better and do properly. Yeah, I would completely agree with that because that, it relates to all sorts of uh, interventions that we have. We have them all. You know, we're not lacking in, I mean, apart from the obvious ones like drug consumption rooms, we're not lacking in um, treatment, OST, needle exchanges, all that sort of stuff, but they could all be massively improved. And part of that, and this is the bit where it becomes difficult, more difficult for the task force, is about resourcing that. So there's I've been discussions about how you you carve up the existing budget, but actually it's becoming quite obvious that yes, we can do so much with innovations, and those innovations are important in terms of the delivery and the locks on or whatever. But if we increase the number of people in treatment and we increase the harm reduction supports to people, then the pie itself will have to be bigger rather than worrying about how it's sliced. Uh, these are interesting times. <laughs> Great. Well, I think that's probably a good point for us to to, to round up and just say, uh, hopefully you found that helpful. Um, I, I certainly have. It's great having three different minds around the table dissecting uh, uh, the pie of the task force, as, as Austin uh, has just put into my mind right now. <laughs> 
So thanks for joining us for another Drugs Uncut episode. If you liked what you heard, then please subscribe and give us a five-star rating as it helps the show get recognised and spreads the word to future listeners. Uh, thanks also to all those who listened to our first episode where we sat down with Canadian drug user activist, Crackdown podcast host and radio documentarian Garth Mullins uh, where we discussed opioid substitution therapy, drug user activism and both what Canada and Scotland can learn from each other in regards to reducing drug-related harms. If you missed it, go back, give it a listen as it was a baptism of fire for us for our first show but I think it was quite a good yeah. it was a good lesson I think we think anyway so we'll be back next time look at the new heroin assisted treatment service that will be opening soon in Glasgow until then thanks very much and see you then <laughs>